Part two of Bizarre by Lawton McCall. This LibVox recording is in the public domain. Jouet Ballet. New and better ideas of child education are steadily making their way. Nearly everyone now acknowledges that the schoolroom should be primarily a place of entertainment, that the true vocation of the teacher is to amuse in an instructive manner and that study is really a scientific form of play. Also, it is quite genuinely admitted that methods which involve mental effort on the part of the child are not to be tolerated. So much progress has already been made, but now there has just appeared a book which bids fair to carry the educational advance as far ahead again. This book, entitled A Baseball Primal French, substitutes for the conventional pedantry of conjugations, syntax, etc., a vivid account in French of an imaginary world series. Any boy who studies it will understand it instinctively. If for the foreign text prove obscure, he has only to read the English translation underneath. The author, Speed Stevens, who it may be remembered was captain of his college nine, shows a profound knowledge of baseball. Indeed, it is on account of his ability as athletic coach that he holds his position of instructor in French Croton. The following extract gives an inkling of the rare pedagogical value of the book. Dans les dixième points avec deux hommes. In the tenth period, Two men, surpassed and sorted, about even on bases on one out, Harburg found, then, Billy Larousse ramassa sa chaussurie, et Billy Walker picked up his bat, and Marchaikon's palassiette Hank strode to the plate, Hank. Arrigan, vrai à ses lauriers de plus grande. Harrigan, true to his laurels as the greatest, vivant d'un aïeux soupat, petit évêque un living a southpaw dweller, started off with a tiré de dents qui faisait zip-zip un telon. Zipping in shoot, scarring a frappe, le suivant fut un bull, to gun of strike. The next, a ball. Dugan en premier descendit avec son bras et voilà là. First went down with his arm in the stove. Deuxième basse, mes bras fut mis en dehors. Second base, with brown, put out. Pour troisième, alors la couche mis et dessus. A third, then picked put over. Une balle salivée, frappe de puis vomant. A split ball, strike two, then came. Un coup de balle, le compétent maintenant. Two more balls. The count is now trois à deux. Et les éventails s'essayant son harangue. Three to two, and the fans sat breathless. Bill assomma une longue mouche qui tombe. 
Bill knocked out a long fly which fell volaille. Il suiva celle-ci avec une volaille. Foul. He followed this with a pot. Papus, qui l'aurait fini était une fly that would have finished him. Ma chance stupide de la part de l'attrapeur. But for stupid mouth by the catcher, Aragon devenait grancet et cathaway. Aragon was becoming rattled, and cathaway, voiteron de la ligne des côtés, lui criait bras. Coaching from the sideline yelled at him, glass. Dever, il monte, il monte, la arms, he's going up, he's going up. Le cruche, on voyait une côte facile, bill de baguette. Pitcher sent an easy drop. Bill landed. La dessus carrément, le menon pas dessus là. On it squarely, driving it over the tête, à la right côte, loin dans le champ. Shot stops head, part into left. Gauche, c'était un oiseau du front, du camp. Filled, it was a bird of a head, Duggan. Montella et puis Bill gaiement sont les scored. Then Bill gaily circling the sac glisse sur chez soi pendant qu'elle bags slid safe home as he blanchisseur allait sauver bleaches went wild. The art of packing with a disquisition on the science of brooding for what you have packed. A traveller is a person who escorts baggage. You may think he is taking a trip for business or pleasure, but whether he be journeying from Brooklyn to Buchan from one trunk, or touring Europe with a bevy of handbags, his real occupation consists in chaperoning impedimenta. There is something almost touching of the way in which he looks after his little flock seeing that they are properly tagged, counting them anxiously to be sure that none are missing, defending them from the cruelty of expressing them, pleading with them at the feet of customs inspectors. He has care for the humblest satchel. If it be lost, he will set down three full suitcases and seek after it until he found it. Not that he is actually fond of his luggage, but he has packed it brought it with him, and therefore his under obligation to it is responsible for its well-being. He knows in his heart that many of the clothes he has brought will never be worn. Most of the books he has stowed away, dry-looking volumes which he long ago decided he ought to read, but which somehow he has never got found to, will not be opened. Nevertheless, he has these things with him, and it is his duty to cherish them, and see them safely back home again. As he unpacks his belongings at the first stop, he wonders what his state of mind could have been when he packed them. Why had he deemed his shaving brush de trop? And why, oh why, had he abandoned his faithful slippers? Had he imagined that two left-hand rubbers constituted a pair? Five hats and caps are all very nice, but why did he put it only? Four handkerchiefs. 
and even an array of fifty-seven neckties affords poor consolation for the total absence of socks. As for the bathing suit, the morning top would be the only place where he could use that, and even there it would hardly seem appropriate. Anybody with a price of a ticket can travel from one city to another, but it takes a real genius to pack a trunk. The art must be practiced in its purity. There must be no mixing of the pancake, or roll them up, style with the flapjack, or spread them out flat style. Such eclecticism is pernicious. Considered from another point of view, the packing is a fascinating game. You put all sorts of objects in a trunk. The baggage man churns them thoroughly, and then you take them out again and try to guess what they are. You meet with a hundred different surprises. For instance, you never would have dreamed that a derby hat could turn inside out, or that a single suit could acquire ninety-three separate and distinct creases, or that a book could swallow a mirror and have indigestion from it, or that a bottle of ink inside seven wrappings could break and assert itself over a pile of shirts and a month's supply of colours. The great paradox of packing is that a trunk is always full when you close it, and always three-quarters empty when you open it. A trunk that nothing but violent stamping will shut is the very trunk that a few hours later bounces your possessions about like beans in a rattle, so that when you lift the lid again you find them huddled forlornly in a corner, exhausted and battered from their shuttle sticks. Another peculiarity is that nothing that you want is what you think it is. The garment that you clearly remember putting in the right-hand front corner of the top tray is sure to turn up at last in the opposite part of the bottom. Indeed, sooner will the Sphinx give up her secret than the trunk give up the thing you are looking for. To dig up de profundis, a shoehorn that you need is a more remarkable achievement than to unearth a new Pompeii. Rooting is a science. Suppose, for instance, you wish to locate a pair of scissors without disturbing the general order. You begin by classifying the scissors in your mind, in order that you may calculate their position in the trunk. You consider them with reference to the following scheme of arrangement, which you recite as if you were an elevator boy in a department store. 1. Main tray. Shirts. Collars, hats, handkerchiefs, and toilet articles. 2. Mezzanine tray. Dress clothes, neckwear, art goods, and bric-a-brac. Basement. Shoes, hardware, suits, underwear, books, medicines, and sporting goods. Concluding after due deliberation, scissors are equally appropriate for all of these. You start in on the main tray, sliding your palms around the edge as though you are easing ice cream out of a mold. Scissors. You delve deeper, using the back of your hand as a plowshare. No scissors. Refusing to be baffled, you leave no garment unturned. No scissors. Growing a trifle impatient, you take out the main tray and tackle the mezzanine. This will be a simple matter, because it is so shallow that you have only to feel around the edges. No scissors. Perhaps they got shaken into the middle. You borrow there, making considerable work with clothes brush. No scissors. Now you are genuinely angry. You toss the mezzanine from the arms of a chair. It is a rocking chair, 
and slides the tray gently forward and deposits its face downward upon the floor. Pretending to ignore this, you plunge both arms into the basement so violently that the lid unclicks and gives you a cowardly blow on the back of the head. You rise up and vow that this your chattel shall fright you no more. Seizing it fiercely, you turn it upside down and dump its contents about the room. The scissors. Then there steals into your mind a vision of the above-mentioned cutlery lying in a chiffonier in a room hundreds of miles away, and the realization that they are probably lying there still. Agriculture indoors. The usual package of seeds has not arrived. Is the Honorable my representative in Congress neglecting me? The uncertainty palls. Year after year, this eminent legislator has favored me with floral tributes in Colonel Farm, so that I have come to think of him as my inalienable rights as a constituent. True, as is the case with the thousands of other voters in this urban district which he represents, I have no facilities for horticulture. Living in a New York apartment seven stories up and unequipped with arable soil, the nondescript substance which deposits in my window sills from outshaken mops above would scarcely qualify as loam. I've been at a loss as to what disposition to make of said seats. My dear friend, writes the benevolent legislator, I am enclosing a list issued by the Department of Agriculture showing bulletins available for free distribution, which contain very valuable information for all classes of readers. He invites me to choose any six by number, but he may promptly send them to me. Only six. To select that limited allotment from so alluring a galaxy is difficult, not to say bewildering. Number 73 catches my eye. Fly traps and their operation. Simply must have that one. It seems to promise an insight into the mysteries of oratory. Perhaps it may enable me the better to appreciate my instant seat. Nor can I hope to live a rounded life if I fail to assimilate number 940, common white grubs, and number 920, milk boats. And number 788, the windbreak of the farm asset. That makes four already, to which I must certainly add the kindly number 1105, care of mature fowls, and the arrestingly realistic number 1085, hog lice and hog mange. Thus my six choices are used up, and I am what at the threshold of this new world of knowledge that lies tantalizing for me. What of number 685, celebrating that splendidly uncompromising American growth, the native personal and the intriguing cryptic? Numbers 515 and 1143, revealing the secrets of wretches, less pedeza, and farage crop. Surely this coveted information should not be withheld from me. Why should I be deprived of the privilege of weeding aloud to my family number 762, false cinch bug, message for control, and number 1127, peanut corn for profit, and number 948, ragdoll seed taster?
such romances were available for every one, there would be less senseless gadding about on the part of the young fox. Let the flapper fill her mind, not her flask, with number 767, goose raisin, or number 757, commercial varieties of alfalfa, and let her heed the warning against the short skirts in number 1135, the beef cow. It has been said that there is an American insufficient appreciation of architecture. Ah, true, my friends. Let the multitude common number 438 pork houses as examples of chaste suppression of meaningless ornamentation numbers 966 and 682. Simple pork breeding crate, simple trap nest for poultry. Included in this invaluable list are to be found not only the frankly practical but also the vividly dramatic, offsetting such everyday but significant matters as number 1189, the handling of spinach for shepherds, number 1153, cow pea utilization, number 1161, daughter, and number 978, barnyard manure in eastern Pennsylvania. There are offered imagination-stirring themes like number 835, how to detect outbreaks of insects, number 874, swine management, and number 1003, one that should be especially prized by the impecunious how to control billbuds. Until I read this list, I had no idea that spiritualism had entomological phrases which Conan Doyle seems to have overlooked. Again and again, there is mention of strange creatures and their psychic controls. Number 1074, the Bean Lady Bird and its control. Number 1060, Harlequin Cabbage Bug and its control. Number 897, Fleas and their control. And number 975, presumably throwing light on the immigration problem, the control of European fowl brood. More comprehensible to me are the following. In Ends Home Life and Pets, number 1014, Wintering Bees and Cellars, number 1104, Book Lice, and number 846, Tobacco Beetle and How to Prevent Loss. Does one keep the beetle on a leash, I wonder? Bolshevism, number 1054, the local weed, chambers of commerce, get-together clubs, etc. Number 993, cooperative bull associations. Prohibitionists, number 1220, insect and fungus enemies of the creek. All in all, there are at least 30 bulletins which every citizen of this metropolis needs to make him an intelligent voter, and my MC allows me but six. My allotment being limited, he explains. But why should his allotment be thus limited, since he grants that the bulletins are indispensable to my enlightenment? It is not for him to apologize, but to see that I am fully supplied with them, to protest that the Department of Agriculture cramps his largesse is no excuse, for does not Almighty 
Congress rule the Department of Agriculture and run it in the interests of the people and not for the sake of a lot of rubes. No, let him spur the Department to greater efforts, press the presses to greater output. When my little son looks up into my eyes and asks, Daddy, tell me about the flat-headed apple tree boar, am I to answer him, sorry, my boy, but bulletin number 1065 was denied me by a niggardly government. My MC will not have done his complete duty till every home in the city boasts a five-foot shelf of bulletins and head every family can gather his dear ones without the radiator in the evening with a cheer. Ah, now we take up number 956, the spotted garden slug. Every one who pays strict attention gets a hollyhock seed. Only then will the true function of government be realized. Meanwhile, the seeds have come. Snowy Bosoms At the risk of seeming churlish and veritable outcast from society, I confess that I have no great fondness for snowy bosoms. I realize that they are generally considered beautiful, and that their virgin whiteness is the embodiment of unyielding purity, and I cannot but prefer the more comfortable negligee shirt. If only they could be soft while though, I'd so appreciate a three-minute one. I know it would sit better on the stomach. The whites could be firm enough to hold together, and yet so much so as to acquire a knife to break into it. Garlish chemises that approached this ideal did appear several seasons ago. Their finest pieces are encrusted with a swarm of very young tucks, which rendered them quite docile. But these gentle, easy-going garments, with their fine pleats and amenable buttonholes, could not survive. They were, alas, too soft. They lacked the stoicism of starch. They could not hold them against sterner, fibred, armored breastworks. So we men of today, when we go to perform our even devotions to the ladies upon the same old white plague, I might find some consolation in the fact of my aversion to it is shared by all laundries. Yes, the laundry is my avenger. With Machiavellian guile, it invites shirts, seeks them, welcomes them, professes a yearning passion for them, and then subtly destroys them in secret, commits an insufferable new stud-smasher to a laundry, note the fate that overtakes it, see what happens to its bold front. A week later it will be brought back to you with its spirit quite broken, and its tail between its sleeves, and held in the subjection of a squad of menacing pins. The moment you rend the veil of wax paper with which they have discreetly concealed its destination, you are amazed to find how it has aged in one short week. It has become like the sear and yellow leaf. There are crow's feet at the corners of its buttonholes. It is so weak that they have had to send it on a pasteboard stretcher to keep it from going all to pieces. Your asphalt festive buckler now looks more like the bosom of Abraham. End of part two.